from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, March 22nd. Today, how Trump will use the Pentagon's budget to pay for his border wall. Roseanne Barr heads to Israel, and what birth order says about personality. When President Trump declared a national emergency last month, that meant that he could access billions of dollars in military funding and use it for the border wall. We're talking about an invasion of our country with drugs, with human traffickers, with all types of criminals and gangs. What this national emergency allows Trump to do, theoretically, is to take any of the money that Congress has given to the Pentagon, but has yet to be contracted out. That's Paul Sony. I am the Pentagon correspondent for The Post. The White House hasn't said what projects will have their funding redirected toward the wall. But this week, the Department of Defense released a list of forthcoming projects. And the funding for these projects could be on the chopping block if the president uses his emergency powers. So what we did is we went through that list. We took the list of $12.9 billion worth of projects, and we cut out everything that is scheduled to award between now and the end of September. And when you do that, you come up with a list that is actually $4.3 billion. And the White House says it needs $3.6 billion for the wall just this fiscal year. So theoretically, that's most of the funding in this pot of money. The immediate question that came up was what in the Pentagon budget is going to lose funding that Congress already gave to it in service of construction of the wall? And it turns out quite a bit. The territory or state that's most affected is Puerto Rico. There's $403 million worth of projects in Puerto Rico that are on this sort of slimmed-down list of most likely Mm -hmm. um, to get defunded. And would those projects have been related to recovery from the hurricane? These are mostly projects that were funded before that. The top state by value that is at risk of being defunded is Washington State. They have three projects out there. Two of them are designed to improve um, the place where we have all of our nuclear submarines. And then by number of projects, Virginia is the state at the top of the list. So how are people going to be affected by this? So one of the things that we learned when we looked into the specifics of what's likely to be defunded is that a large amount of the money is actually for schools. It's for schools on military installations, both abroad and in the United States. So it's something like over $600 million. And this is for the renovation and reconstruction of elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools on military bases in places like Germany, Japan, and then here in the United States. There's one in Kentucky at Fort Campbell. And then you said that there are projects that are supposed to happen in other countries that will likely be defunded. Yeah, I think one of the most shocking things that you see when you when you drill down into the specifics of this list is there's been a longstanding Pentagon project to try to shore up European allies that might face Russian aggression. If there is a situation where Russia does anything to them militarily, the U.S. would be able to come to their aid. Allied forces would be able to come to their aid quickly. Wait, so the fact that this project that in theory helps us defend against Russian military aggression, the fact that that's on the chopping block, at least for now, are, 
Are we supposed to read something into that? I don't think that was purposeful. I think that just happens to be the case when you drill down into the list. But it's $745 million worth of funding for these initiatives in European countries. And it is facing an outsized impact if they take this money. But the Trump administration says, we're not really defunding this. We're just diverting the money for now. And then Congress can come in, appropriate more money next year in order to pay for these projects. What does Congress have to say about that? So this is the whole debate about what they're calling backfilling. And so the idea is we will take this money out of the military construction fund. And then in next year's budget, Congress will fund, again, the projects that we've already taken the money for. Senator Shelby, who is uh, in charge of appropriations in the Senate, he has said, don't worry, that's fine, we'll do that. Democrats in the House said, absolutely not. We're not going to appropriate congressional money for projects that we've already appropriated congressional money for because that sort of undermines the whole purpose of Congress, which is to hold the power of the purse under the Constitution. The, the idea that, like, we've paid for this once, and if you decided that it wasn't important enough to keep the money there to pay for this project, then we're not going to find a way to pay for this a second time. Right. A lot of what the Democrats are emphasizing is the precedent problem here, that if you allow a president to simply declare a national emergency and then use Pentagon funds in a way that Congress hasn't approved, then you could get situations in the future where future presidents continue to do that. And then Congress is kind of held hostage every time to refund the projects they've already funded, which creates this possibility of a breakdown in the process. So is there any way for Democrats in Congress to prevent the Trump administration from using the money in this way? So they can refuse to pass a bill that includes any backfilling. What we don't know is how this will all get debated over the course of the year as they debate next year's budget. So the question of backfilling is a question of what will be in next year's budget or not. Um, and that process has only just begun. The Trump administration only just submitted um, its request to Congress for the 2020 budget. And so over the course of the year, the Republicans and the Democrats will be debating what will be in that budget. And one of the questions will be is, will there be any backfilling for this money that's taken for the wall? And what we don't know is whether the Democrats will prove willing to cut a deal on that front. Will they say, well, we'll put the $3.6 billion dollars back into these projects if you agree to something else. Because what the Trump administration is also proposing is cuts to domestic spending, including Medicaid. And there are other priorities that the Democrats want to see changed in this budget. So there will be some horse trading there. And this will certainly be one of the prime topics discussed. Paul Sony is a Pentagon reporter for The Post. Registered for. Uh, I, that's, that's a state secret. So let's. I can guess. Okay. Oh, please don't guess. Please don't guess. So, guys, let me just say a little bit about today. Firstly, uh, I'm going to start off the record. We do, have a, we do have a journalist with us from the Washington Post. A celebrity rabbi, a Washington Post reporter, and Roseanne Barr are on a bus in Israel. It almost sounds like a joke. But Jeff Edgers recently found himself in this situation. I've almost introduced myself to everybody. I'm, I'm Jeff Edgers. I'm from the Washington Post. I'm the national arts reporter. And I'm He's to Jewish, too. I am. <laughs> <laughs> 
Roseanne is, and she's always identified herself as a, a, what she would call a Jewy Jew. That's her language. She is uh, very religious and very strong-willed about Israel. One of my editors noticed that she was supposed to go to Israel to speak to the parliament. And one added advantage is this, this celebrity rabbi, Rabbi Shmuley Boteik. You know, he wrote a book with Pamela Anderson on sex. And uh, he, he had a reality show. He's this Orthodox rabbi who does not shy away from publicity. He was organizing this trip and he was bringing her over. So I connected with him and I was able to link myself into this thing. And there was a, a small percentage of a chance that she wouldn't spend any time with me. But I figured if I just got to Jerusalem, I'd have a chance. Jeff has always been kind of interested in Roseanne Barr as this cultural figure, an outspoken blue-collar comedian whose sitcom told complicated but relatively progressive stories about a changing America in the 1990s. I'm an old man, and I remember that first show, and I remember Roseanne. And uh, what I remember is that she was unlike anybody else who suddenly plopped onto my TV. Your coffee? Coffee every morning. Yes. She had this sort of nasally voice. In the 15 years we've been married, has there ever been one morning where there wasn't any coffee? No. And why do you have to ask me every morning if there's coffee? She was overweight and like really not stylish and seemed to embrace that. There was so much about her that was interesting to me. But after her show ended, Roseanne became more of a fringe figure especially online. She's uh, like seen as a deranged conspiracy theory pushing Trump supporter. Exactly. But, you know, again, just to consider the contrast, it, you know, in 1994, GLAAD gave her that award, the first Vanguard Award, recognizing her. She was put on the cover of The Advocate and recognized as their person of the year. I mean, that's a pretty deep contrast. After Donald Trump was elected president, ABC decided to reboot Roseanne. They thought that the show could resonate with an increasingly divided America. How could you have voted for him, Roseanne? He talked about jobs, Jackie. He said he'd shake things up. I mean, this might come as a complete shock to you, but we almost lost our house the way things are going. Have you looked at the news? Because now things are worse. The show was a ratings success. But near the end of the first season, it suddenly got canceled. And that was because Roseanne posted a tweet about Valerie Jarrett, a senior advisor under Obama. In the tweet, she compared Jarrett to a character from Planet of the Apes. Here's the thing. That tweet is not defensible. I mean, we know that. You can't defend it. But she's tried to explain it. I mean, she tried to apologize. And uh, the problem is, uh, the apology was also an explanation, and the explanation didn't really make a lot of sense to people. I mean, what what, what did she say? Well, her explanation is one: uh, she did not know that Valerie Jarrett identified herself as African American. So that's one uh. thing. Two, the other piece is that she's obsessed, and there's a long record of her hatred and obsession with the Obama administration and their policy in Iran and their Iran nuclear deal and what it means for Israel. There's a long record of that. I'm not saying it's a, it's a logical record, but there's a long record of her speaking out on that. And the thread she responded to that night in the middle of the night with her laptop open on her bed was about 
It started with something about WikiLeaks and Obama, and it led to Valerie Jarrett. And then she made this tweet uh, using Planet of the Apes, which she said was used as an explanation for the government in Iran, comparing the government in Iran to the actual movie Planet of the Apes. Again, how anyone could determine that from a 53-character tweet is beyond me, and I think beyond her. But, you know, this is a woman who, you know, her own kids were trying to hide her Twitter account. I mean, what more can we say about it? I mean, it's the most regretful tweet you could ever imagine anyone making. After her show was canceled last May, Roseanne mostly disappeared from public life. But then, earlier this year, she started to reemerge. So, I mean, this is like an obvious question answer to me, but like we'll just pretend that I'm not asking it. But okay. why is Roseanne Barr on on the West Bank uh, next to this barbed wire overlooking Tel Aviv and the airport? Why not? <laughs> but it's it's this is something that's obviously dear to you, right? I mean, there's yes, a purpose. Uh, I'm I'm a religious Jew, and. Uh, my family lives here in Israel. I have family in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, and I love it here. It's my whole history that I've studied. Everything that matters to me is here, and in the United States, too. But this is like homeland, Bible, you know, heartfelt stuff that I study and care about. So that's why. She's very much feeling like she needs to fight for Israel. She feels very strongly about the divestment movement and the folks who are attacking Israel. So she feels like Israel is under attack. That's one thing. Um, Two, I'm not sure she would say it this way, but I think there's something quite wonderful when you're under attack yourself to go to a place where um, you're going to be embraced because her politics are so aggressively in support of Israel I mean, everybody's going to cheer her on and listen to her. Jeff spent eight days in Israel with Roseanne, and he hoped that by spending time with her, he could understand her better. You know, she's Roseanne. She's, uh, (laughs) I don't know how to describe it other than how I am. Uh, It's just odd. But when we got back to Jerusalem, she at the same time had been struck by a virus. And, you know, she had my email, she had my cell number. So she would send me a note like at four in the morning, like, you round? It's like, well, I'm sleeping, but, uh, you know, a couple times I was around and I went over there. Yeah, and I don't, I need a lot of downtime. You know, I always mix things up a lot. <laughs> and then I'm like, God, no wonder everyone's confused. And it basically allowed me to sit with her for hours just talking. What did you guys talk about? One piece of Roseanne that I don't think people really understand is she's had mental illness in her life. I mean, she was in a psychiatric hospital for a time. She had multiple personalities. I mean, she really has talked openly about battling through these things. I don't think anyone thinks about that because she's also so abrasive and so aggressive about things. But I found that talking with her in that room was very different from watching her in a public event when she's getting egged on or she's trying to be outrageous. And um, I was very interested in understanding sort of her perspective as an outsider. I mean, I feel like she spent her whole life um, trying to explain herself. And ultimately, 
uh, it's almost impossible to do. But that must be quite frustrating. And then I also think it's interesting how, uh, to me, um, she's not doing anything all that different from the outrageous stuff she was doing in the 90s. It's just that she's on Twitter. And so everything is amplified. And um, it's it's just hard to walk back from some of the crazy things that you, you might tweet. So was there a part of you that at all thought, maybe I'll just hang back for a little while and not be quite as aggressive about this? Yeah, and I did. Till that tweet. That one night, you had a beer and a... Well, other things that happened that day that devastated me. And I just didn't care anymore, basically. What happened to you that day that would make you feel that way? That sounds um, terrible. Yeah, it was really bad. Uh, well, there was, like, I, were you there last night? Yeah. When I talked about that first ABC. Um, the publicity campaign. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The press conference where you said that you come in. Yeah. Just these five people questioning. One in a, after another calling me a racist because I voted for Trump. And because um, I cared about the United States. Uh that one left a really bad taste in my mouth. And, and then, so I had a, um, I got it. I got what they were doing. And uh, so that kind of colored everything after that. After that, it was kind of hard not to see it. The whole trip built toward this speech that Roseanne gave for an audience that included members of the Knesset, which is the Israeli parliament. You know, the auditorium is packed. Um, Roseanne is there. There's this deputy prime minister for the Knesset. There's Rabbi Shmuley on stage. And uh, Roseanne made sort of a prepared speech, you know, kind of talking about her own background with Judaism and, and Israel and also her feelings politically. And tonight I'm speaking as a Jewish grandmother from the holiest city in the world to me, which is Jerusalem. And my prayer here tonight is that someday soon I will be able to pray at my holiest site in the world, free of arrest, and because it is against international law for a Jew to pray at the Temple Mount. Now, why is that? What? Why is that? And then she took questions from the crowd. But I mean, it was it was a it was a friendly. I mean, these people were there to support her. But then there was a question that was asked of her that was somewhat confrontational or something that that a lot of the audience members didn't really appreciate. Uh, Israel is the place where people ask to be forgiven by God. Although Yom Kippur uh, took place during September, would you like to take this opportunity to apologize, apologize for your racist tweet? 
did you hear his, her speech? Did you hear her speech? The fact that you called it a racist tweet means you are the most racist person in this room. I've explained what it meant, and you won't let go of that, will you? Because you, you, you know. Okay, you no, 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 no. Let's no, be, let me please. deal with him. You're, you're just like, you know, fake news. Oh, you want to ask another question? You're insulting. Many You're like Wait, a terrible person. You're a terrible person. Listen, you're a terrible person. You're a mean person who just wants to insult people, you know, for no reason whatsoever. I guess that gives you some sort of battery. And you do have that sneer. I see it right on your face. I pray to God for you. I pray to God to raise the sparks in you so that you'll become a decent person. Ultimately, I think Roseanne thought that her TV show and her public persona could be the same as her family, which is they all have different political views. You know, some of them like Bernie, some of them like, I mean, none of, none of them seem to like Trump except for Roseanne. They argue all the time. They disagree on things. Uh, you know, that's what that show, when it relaunched, was about. I mean, those people were a diverse group of people. And she thought that could carry over into the real world. And I'm not sure it can. Why not? Because I, I do think there is, we're at a moment where we haven't figured out how to deal with over-the-top uh, <laughs> abrasiveness with apologies, with semi-apologies, with scandal, with when you come back. I mean, I, I it's too complicated for me to figure out. And so I think we're at a very interesting point in time. So I, I don't know the answer to it, but I do know that, um, you know, her son wrote me this 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 great note actually a couple days ago, Jake, um, Bernie voter. And he said, look, Mom hasn't changed at all. It's just the world has changed. He might be right. Jeff Edgers is a national arts reporter for The Post. A new version of Roseanne, called The Connors, returned to ABC this fall. Roseanne Barr's character was killed off, the victim of an opioid overdose. The Connors had lower ratings than Roseanne, but on Friday, ABC announced that it was renewing the show for a second season. And now, one more thing. How much does birth order influence your personality? Marsha has her disappointments, too. She doesn't always win. You'll never guess what! I just got a call from the school. I've been made editor of the school newspaper! There is this persistent idea that firstborn children are type A and these kind of, you know, student council presidents and things like that. Well, all 
I hear all day long at school is how great Marsha is at this or how wonderful Marsha did that. So the idea is that parents have just a limited amount of attention that they can give to everyone. So if you are a middle child and you're not the baby and you're not the oldest, then maybe you have to act out or internalize the fact that you're not getting as much attention as your as your siblings are. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha! The baby, I, you know... Again, and this is all stereotype, I think it would would really be that creative rebel type who, you know, they get away with a lot because, you know, mom and dad are tired after raising the eldest. Birth order is fascinating and has fascinated psychologists and psychoanalysts for about a century. So these are really deep-seated old ideas that people have been tossing around for a long time. As psychologists were starting to be aware of maybe some more Darwinian ideas, then we start to see folks like Frank Silloway in the 1990s who proposed his idea in a book called Born to Rebel. The firstborns tend to uh, identify with the status quo to defend the orthodoxy. The younger siblings tend to rebel against it. As tempting as these theories are about birth order, over really large populations, at least for adults, they don't bear out. Maybe these theories have other explanations. And one of those things could be, could be age itself. Well, Marsh is three years older than you. She should have more to show for herself. So when we think about ourselves and our siblings and we're comparing each other, it's really hard to do that and not think about the fact that we're just maybe older or younger than our siblings. And so that's why we put ourselves into these scenarios and and, and we like to label ourselves and, and order ourselves in the world. But it really could be that as we also know that as you get older, you get more conscientious. So the firstborn child could always seem the most conscientious, but it could just be that she or he is the oldest and therefore is becoming an adult and becoming more conscientious. Radhika Damien at the University of Houston is a psychologist, and she describes birth order personality effects as a zombie theory. What a zombie theory is, is an idea that in the face of all this evidence just doesn't seem to die. It just keeps lurching forward uh, because maybe there's historical bias towards it or we just feel it in our guts that it's intuitive and we want to hold on to it. Ben Guarino is a science reporter for The Post and an oldest child. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you want to support the show and the work that we do here, we have a special offer for you, our Post Reports listeners. A 50% discount on an unlimited digital subscription, which means you get access to our website and our apps for less than a dollar a week. Visit postreports.com slash offer. Our executive producer is Natalie Kasika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post. 